Welcome to Slaking Thirst, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. So uh, just as a way of recap, if you weren't here last week, last week we talked about just the bad news of this story. We talked about the fall. Right? Last week was looking at original sin, looking at the great calamity at the beginning of our story that our first parents were deceived by the enemy and they sold our race into slavery to the powers of sin and death. This is why we became captive humanity, right? That's why during Advent we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, ransom, captive Israel. Right? So we were stuck, utterly helpless, these, this rebel race, um, alienated from God, in this kind of great cosmic divorce, if you will. But God, in his great mercy and his great generosity, he doesn't just leave us in this state. We have that powerful prophetic word at the beginning of Genesis where we hear that God is going to act in a decisive and definitive way. That he's going to crush the head of the serpent through the woman and that through this, we would be saved, right? So we are promised from the beginning that God would do something about this. He's going to do something about this. That's what we're talking about today. We're talking about what did he do about this? We've already talked about this a little bit, right? So the very, that very beginning session of becoming Catholic, where I shared the whole story of the gospel with us, right? The story of our creation, the capture, the rescue response. Does this ring a bell? Created, capture, rescue response? Well, truth be told, I kind of left out a significant part of this, right? So and the problem is the whole, uh, the, the alliteration piece, right? So it's technically created, captured, Israel, rescued response. So it just kind of, it doesn't ring. It doesn't have as good of a ring. If you go created, captured, rescued response, that sounds good. Created, captured, Israel, rescued response, doesn't sound as good. Not as good on a bumper sticker. But Israel is a very important chapter I mean, section of the book, if you will, of, of this whole story. So that's what we're talking about tonight. Uh, also, in one of those beginning sessions, I spoke about how our Christian faith is nailed to history. There's a historicity to Christianity. Like our faith, remember how we talked about, uh, I showed you that image of the pilot stone. This is the session we had up in the church. I showed that picture of the pilot stone, that archaeological uh, discovery that has the name of Pontius Pilate on it, right? Like our faith is nailed to history, like literally in you know, point of fact, right? We say he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Remember, I, I told you there was a kid in the school who asked me, uh, Father, what is a Pontius Pilate? Like we say he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. What's a Pontius Pilate? It's this big structure. No, it's, the, it's a person, right? So our faith, our creed, it doesn't begin like this. We don't start the creed by saying a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Like our faith begins with very specific historical elements. Um, I want to play something for you. It's called the Christmas Proclamation. I doubt very many of us have ever heard this. Maybe some of us have. But um, it's, it's traditionally sung or chanted at midnight mass Christmas Eve. Now, I don't know why we don't do it here. I'm, I'm lobbying Eric to work on this for next year. Um, it is a gorgeous, gorgeous piece. But just listen to... Listen to the history that's spoken, of, uh, spoken about in this. It's, it's quite beautiful. So listen to this. Make sure the volume's up here. 
Hang on. Isn't that awesome? I love that. It's like around the 1,000th year since the foundation of Rome. <laughs> That's so awesome. Obviously, it doesn't begin a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. This is not once upon a time. This is very historical. And it's so important for us to grasp this. And it's important for us to grasp uh, tonight the big picture. This is what tonight's about, the big picture, the 35,000-foot view. There's a pilot reference for you, Abby. 35,000-foot view. So here's, uh, this is from the Catechism, paragraph 759. If you want to look at these later, this quote from uh, Catechism 759. The Eternal Father, in accordance with the utterly gratuitous and mysterious design of His wisdom and goodness, created the whole universe and chose to raise up men to share in His own divine life to which he calls all men in his Son. The Father determined to call together in a holy church those who should believe in Christ. 
this family of God is gradually formed and takes shape during the stages of human history. That's bold for a reason. In keeping with the Father's plan, in fact, already present in figure at the beginning of the world, this church was prepared in marvelous fashion in the history of the people of Israel and the old alliance. Established in this last age of the world and made manifest in the outpouring of the Spirit, it will be brought to glorious completion at the end of time. So the catechism is teaching us what the church is teaching us is that from the beginning God has intended to draw all men into this family, into his family. I love the image of Bernini's colonnade at St. Peter's Square. If you ever go to St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, there's huge St. Peter's Square, which is the shape of a circle, which is confusing. So St. Peter's Square, which is a circle. Um, but in this circle square, there is these two arms that reach out. It's meant to look like the arms of Mother Church reaching out to gather in the entire world. That's the idea. Mother Church reaching out to ingather, to gather in the entire world. I particularly love, again, this bolded line. This family of God is gradually formed, and it takes shape during the stages of human history. That's what we're talking about tonight. I also love that uh, the catechism refers to the Old Covenant as the Old Alliance. I mean, come on now, that's pretty cool. Apparently just to me. Okay, moving on. Okay, so looking at this image of slow organic growth, I'm not going to bore you with this video. I thought it was pretty cool, but it's like three minutes of watching a plant grow. Maybe I will watch it. It is fascinating. This is one of those rabbit holes of YouTube that I just get lost in. It's incredible. There's a lot of, it gets up to like day 21, I think. Look at that. Uh, you're drawn in. I can feel it. Slow, organic growth. Oh, babe. Look at those roots. It's like, how does it know to do that? Symmetrical, same angle on both sides. Oh, my gosh. Who's in awe? I'm in awe. We're in awe. Good. Okay. We're watching the whole thing. Yeah, baby, watch this plant go. I love the music with it, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, it's just amazing. Look, look how much it grows in just one day. And look at those roots. Look at those roots. It's unbelievable. How great is this? I've got a video of uh, paint drying that we're going to watch next. <laughs> and you're going to love it. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I'll spare you. All right, moving on. Um, I mean, it's almost done. We should watch it to the end. <laughs> you want to know how it ends, Eric. I know you do. <laughs> Wait for it. Dun, dun, dun. Look at the roots. Oh, I guess we're not watching the roots. <laughs> I don't remember this being part of the clip. Okay, moving on. Okay. 
that might have been a 10 minute video that I forgot to edit. So we might have been there a while. Okay. Okay. So here's, here's the question. This is not a rhetorical question. I want to hear your thoughts on this because I have my thoughts, but I want to hear your thoughts. How do, when, when people consider history, like, what do, how do most people conceive of history? Like, someone says, what is history? Now, it's kind of a weird question, but this is where you say things. What is it? The past. Okay. Is it, is it guided? Is it random? Like, is it random, right? That's, I think, how most people view history, the, the random nature of the past, that it's not headed anywhere. Right, you've got political philosophers, Hegel's the prime example, thinking about history, that there's history moves through these periods of what he called synthesis, then antithesis, and then moving, uh, a thesis, antithesis, resolving into a synthesis, that history sways like a pendulum trying to find these equilibrium points. Like, that's just not exactly how Christians, the Judeo-Christian vision of reality, that's not how we view history. Like, for the Jews, which we are the, the flowering uh, part of the Jewish plant, if you will, the Jews discerned, like, deeper realities that are operative within all of the, the vicissitudes, with all the, the things, all the stuff of history. They discern that there's a mystery unfolding within the history. Like with the rising of kings and plagues and marriages and family lineages, it's all, it's ordered, it's meaningful. It's not meaningless pendulum swinging. It's, there's a meaningful design that's unfolding. Right? And as Christians, we believe that God is guiding human history in cooperation with human freedom. It's a wild thing. It's a wild thing. Towards a culmination, towards a destination. So when we speak of salvation history as Christians, we're talking about the mystery behind the events and the happenings of history. That, like, that God is the author of the events that unfold that we see around us, the overarching big picture, in particular, what we see revealed in the scriptures, that all of that stuff that happened, it wasn't just random. It was God unfolding things slowly, like the, have I shown you this video of a plant? Let me show you this again. Um, God had a vision, right? And it's unfolding slowly through time. Okay, all right, I won't do it to you. I won't do it to you. So, so this story of salvation history it's punctuated like a mountain range by these different key moments, these key events in what we call the Old Testament. Those punctuated moments are covenants. So this is how we're going to think about this. Covenants, the covenants of salvation history are the, yeah, the, the peaks of the mountain range, so to speak. I want to read this to you. This is from Dr. Scott Hahn. He was an intensely anti-Catholic Protestant uh, pastor who became... A, uh, he became a Catholic, and now he's um, a professor at Franciscan University in Steubenville. He, this is what he said. He discovered, he says, I discovered the covenant thread in Scripture. I had finally begun to see the big picture of salvation history and how all of the innumerable puzzle pieces fit together into a big, beautiful, divine love story. All the many names, places, and events in Scripture often leave first-time readers 
feeling overwhelmed and bewildered. Anybody been there? The Ammonites and the Gigabytes and the Mosquito Bites and the, all the Bites? Overwhelmed and bewildered. Honestly, it took me years before I formed a mental map to find my way around Scripture, especially the Old Testament, without getting lost. But once I mapped out the peak events of the mountain range of salvation history, I finally got the big picture. So he refers to these peak events as the covenants, the covenants. So we've heard this before. Um, Let me talk about covenant real quick. So we've heard the word covenant many times. If you've been to Mass, you've heard the word covenant. You hear it in every Eucharistic prayer. You hear it in the prefaces. The word covenant is an intensely biblical word. Um, And we often think of covenants and contracts kind of synonymously. They're not the same. As Scott Hahn says, covenants differ from contracts just about as much as marriage differs from prostitution. They're very different, right? A covenant, or let me start with this, a contract is an exchange of property, right? I give you this, you give me that. I give Verizon money, and they give me cell phone service, right? It's an exchange of property, exchange of goods. Whereas a covenant is not an exchange of property or goods, it's an exchange of persons, right? Whereas a contract says, this is yours and that is mine, a covenant says, I am yours and you are mine. It's synonymous with marriage. It forms bonds, familial bonds. This is what God is doing. That Go back to the story that we talked about last week. This great divorce that was affected through original sin, God wants to remarry, if you will, the human race. He wants to bond us back together. And again, he does this through covenants. And you hear this in the church's liturgy, in the church's prayer. This is from Eucharistic Prayer 4, the preface. So there's several Eucharistic prayers that the priest can pray and all sorts of different prefaces that he can pray. This is from the preface of Eucharistic Prayer 4, where the priest prays, And when through disobedience humanity had lost your friendship, that was last week, original sin, lost your friendship, you did not abandon him to the domain of death. That's this week. We're not abandoned. Why? Because he came, you came in mercy to the aid of all, so that those who seek might find you. This is the key line. Time and again you offered them covenants, and through the prophets taught them to look forward to salvation. Time and again you offer them covenants. So the church, in her living tradition, has preserved this this understanding, this read of scripture. We see this principally in the liturgy, in the way that the church interprets scripture. You hear this in the Christmas proclamation, like we just heard. You hear this, this view of this mountain range that God has been preparing his people for salvation, you see this in when we have the Easter Vigil this year. So traditionally, there are supposed to be nine readings for the Easter Vigil. Nine. It's a long honking liturgy. It's the liturgy to end all liturgies. And um, most pastors remove a reading or two because like people can't handle it. We'll see about this year, people. I think we might be able to handle it. I mean, I just I made you watch a plant grow for three minutes. I think you can do. Anyway, so... Um, In these readings, there's seven readings from the Old Testament, a reading from uh, one of Paul's epistles, and a reading from one of the Gospels. So these Old Testament readings, they all are looking at this mountain range. They're looking at the stages of history, of salvation history, as God has been unfolding this mysterious plan of trying to bond the human race back to himself. So this view has been like in the church's mind from the beginning. So another way to look at this, this mountain range is 
this sheet that you have in front of you, the Salvation History Cheat Sheet. So what you want to think about here, so looking from the left side to the right side, is that in every successive covenant, there is a covenant mediator, there's a covenant role, covenant form, and covenant sign. With every successive covenant, the reach gets bigger and bigger, broader and broader. Like God's touch point, his connection to the human family increases, it grows more and more. So if you look at the very beginning, the covenant that God first formed with our, our first human parents, Adam and Eve, it was between a marriage. It was just a husband and wife, right? It's not a lot of people, right? It's just them. You skip ahead. We're going we're gonna to go through this tonight. But the covenant with Noah, this, is with, this, this covenant was with Noah and his family. So more people. So the covenant, if you will, is expanding. God's connecting himself. He's gluing himself to more people. Skip ahead to Abram. The covenant is to a tribe. So again, more people, a family of families. Then to Moses with a nation, many families. Then to David, a national kingdom, finally culminating in Jesus, you have the Catholic Church. Anybody know what the word Catholic means? Universal, total, right? So it goes from this marriage all the way to this universal in-gathering with the entire human family, an invitation to the entire human family. And you can see with these different covenants, there's different signs that accompany the covenant and the covenant role and the covenant mediator. We're going to talk about these here tonight. We're going to talk about these. So because of this large overarching read of Scripture, by the way, I know I just like always talk like a million miles a minute. You're always like drinking from a fire hydrant with me. If you have like questions. You're like, I don't know what you just said. Please feel free to stop me. Okay. Does that sound good? I'm not unstoppable. I might appear that way, but I can be stopped. I might keep you over, <laughs> but you can interrupt. Okay. So because of this overarching big view read of scripture, the church began to read the New Testament in light of the Old Testament. And the church began to read the Old Testament as prefiguring the New Testament. So, again, just by way of review, the church is saying that we believe that from the beginning, God has had a plan. He's been unfolding this plan like successively through the centuries, culminating in Jesus, culminating in the church. And everything that he brought to fulfillment, it was prefigured in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, everything that's prefigured there is fulfilled by Jesus in the New Testament. St. Augustine put it this way. The new is hidden in the old, and the old is fulfilled by the new. This is what we call in the church typology. Typology. It's the study of types. It's the study of how people, places, events, circumstances in the Old Testament point to people, places, events in the New Testament. There's someone who does a much better job of explaining this than me, and it's Scott Hahn, a very young Scott Hahn. So we're going to watch this. And you mentioned the word typology. I did. Define that for the audience, and then you give an example of typology in Scripture. A type is something that prefigures Jesus Christ, like the Passover lamb, or like Moses uh, crossing the Red Sea in baptism. Uh, there are other examples, too. I think what we have to recognize is that typology, as it's used in the Catechism, 
is a principle that summarizes some very basic reproducible practical principles for bible study that the ordinary catholic can employ and when you do that i think you'll discover as i did outside the church what's been going on inside the church for two thousand years that makes biblical interpretation in the catholic tradition so much richer so much deeper i remember looking at jerome and augustine and ambrose and seeing how they viewed matthew's gospel i mean that's a gospel i thought i knew so well and then suddenly i discovered that you know augustine's point was well taken that the the new testament is concealed in the old and the old is revealed in the new told you moses as the example and how moses was the deliverer who brought salvation but as soon as he was born his life was threatened by this imperial decree that came from pharaoh that threatened not only him but all the hebrew male children and then he says the same thing with jesus who comes like a new moses when god sends the new savior his life was imperiled at birth by an imperial decree that came from a tyrant that threatened not only his life but all the hebrew male children there in bethlehem and then he looks back at moses and says god saved him by taking him where egypt god saved jesus by taking jesus mary and joseph where the same egypt at the appointed time moses came out went across the water and into the desert you read matthew 2 3 and 4 jesus comes out of egypt passes through the water of the jordan river in baptism and then he too went out into the desert what did Moses do? Augustine explains. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. What does Jesus do? He fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. What happens in that period of, of, of fasting for Moses? Israel is, is tested by God, and they fail the test. What happens to Jesus? He, too, is tested, only he passes the test with flying colors by quoting scripture all three times, and he quotes from Deuteronomy 6 to 8, straight from Moses all three times, and then Moses, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, ascends a mountain to receive the law of the covenant, which he gives the people. Augustine points out, what does Jesus do after his 40 days of fasting? He ascends a mountain and receives the law of the new covenant, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, and he gives it to the people of God. In the old covenant, the people were rebellious, so curses were attached at the end. In the new covenant, Christ knows he's going to give us the Holy Spirit, so the Beatitudes are how the Sermon on the Mount begins, with blessings that are promised along with the Holy Spirit. And as you read Jerome and Augustine and Ambrose and these others, as you apply the principle of typology, you realize these aren't embellishments, these aren't coincidences. This is typology. Moses can't govern Israel alone, so he chooses from the 12 tribes 12 princes, and they assist. Jesus says, uh, to his followers, he chooses 12. And he says, you'll sit on 12 thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Moses, even with the 12, couldn't govern Israel, so he appoints 70 more. In Luke 10, besides the 12, Jesus appoints 70 more, anoints them with the Spirit to assist him. When Moses is tired, he goes up the mountain to be alone with God, but he chooses from the 12 his three closest, Joshua, Aaron, and Hur. When Jesus wants consolation, he goes up a mountain and chooses from the 12, Peter, James, and John. Aaron, Joshua, and her see Moses' face transfigured with the glory of God. So he wears a veil when he comes down. Peter, James, and John see Jesus' face transfigured with the glory of God. And then suddenly Moses and Elijah appear. Well, why them? Well, for one thing, they're the only two men who have survived a 40-day fast in the Old Testament. 
But for another thing, they represent the law and the prophets, respectively. Moses gave the law, Elijah's the greatest of the prophets. And so here we have typology from the birth of Jesus, through his baptism, into the temptation, the giving of the law, the public ministry, the 12, the 70, then the 3, the transfiguration, even the point where in Luke 9 31, I discovered in the Fathers that the topic of conversation between Jesus and Moses up on top of the mountain was Jesus spoke to Moses about his departure, which was soon to take place in Jerusalem. But the Greek word for departure is literally exodos. Here's Jesus talking to Moses about his exodus about to take place in Jerusalem. Moses thinking, well, I know my exodus in Egypt. What about your exodus? I remember, you know, Moses could look back and say, well, the exodus came after ten signs. The first sign was to turn water into blood, the water of the Nile, and the water of the stone jars in Exodus 7. Well, what is Jesus' first sign? In John 2, he turned water into wine. Even the water in the stone jars, the same term that's used in Exodus 7. Later on, after turning water into wine, he'll turn the wine into blood. But, you know, here's the last of Moses' signs right before the Exodus. It's the Passover. What is the last of Jesus' signs before his departure into the heavenly Jerusalem? The new Passover, the Eucharist. I am convinced that if we had a tape recorder on the road to Emmaus, this would have been the kind of thing that those two disciples heard, and then he passed on to the apostles, who passed it on to the early church fathers, and has been maintained down through the ages, and now it is encapsulated here in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Oh, it makes our hearts burn with fire. Right, and uh, it also reminds us how important the Old Testament was to the New Testament people. And, and one of the ways I discovered that is in the Apostolic Fathers, which were the writers, the earliest church fathers, who had learned from the apostles themselves and their disciples. But essentially, before the Bible was put together in its present form, when you look at, for example, First Clement, all of his footnotes, they're all from the Old Testament, right. which says that his theology, the illustration of his theology, was all coming from the Old Testament. When Paul tells Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, he's talking about the scriptures, which was the Old Testament for him. Uh, any questions, class? <laughs> I like when he says tape recorder. He's very much dating himself there, isn't he? Okay, so I know that was a lot. But do you see this whole idea that like the old and the new are connected? The old and the new are connected. And I think that whole walking through the example of Moses, the deliverer of the Old Testament, and Jesus, the deliverer of the New Testament, like those parallels are crazy. Like have you ever heard of that or thought of that or saw that? Like that's mind-blowing stuff. That is mind-blowing stuff. Like, I remember I was, oh gosh, I was, um, oh, no, let's go back. I was in, um, what grade was that? I was a junior in high school. Let me skip ahead to this. I was a junior in high school, and I had I, already had that initial conversion, that encounter with the Lord in Eucharist through that fall retreat planning meeting. Remember, Kristen got me there. Remember her? Who could forget Kristen? I certainly can't. Okay, so um, <laughs> the, uh, I was at a Bible study. I was at a Bible study at some adult 
you know, youth group volunteers at their house. The Bible study was called Word Out. So we would meet on Thursday nights and we would talk about the Sunday readings for the upcoming Sunday. And I remember Beth Davis, uh, Beth Davis walking through the parallels between the story, the, the near sacrifice of Abraham and Isaac and the sacrifice of Christ and God the Father. Like her walking through this and pointing out like this, the symbolism, the connections. And I remember sitting there being so mind blown, so mind blown and realizing for the first time, like I remember sitting there just kind of going like this, like it all fits together. Like it all fits together. The old fits with the new, the new fits with the old. It all fits together. You've got Abraham with his only begotten son in Greek, the monogenes, carrying the wood of the sacrifice up the mountain. God the Father with his only begotten son carrying the wood of the sacrifice up the same mountain. I mean, everything about this story, the old prefigures the new, the new fulfills the old. Mind-blowing stuff. And again, as Scott Hahn said, this is how the early church began to read and understand our story. That Jesus is not this out-of-the-blue figure, but he fulfills everything that God had been doing through the Old Covenant. I love this. This is a quote from, um, oh, Amen. keep going ahead. From an early, early church father, a, a, an Easter homily of Melito of Sardis. He says, in Abel, so think of Cain and Abel, in Abel, Jesus was slain. In Isaac, Jesus was bound. In Jacob, a stranger. In Joseph, sold. In Moses, exposed. In David, persecuted. In the prophets, dishonored. He became incarnate of the virgin. Not a bone of his was broken on the tree. He was buried in the earth, but he rose from the dead and was lifted up to the heights of heaven. He is the silent lamb, the slain lamb, who was born of Mary, the fair you. He was seized from the flock and dragged away to slaughter. Towards evening he was sacrificed, and at night he was buried. But he who had no bone broken upon the cross was not corrupted in the earth, for he rose from the dead and raised up man from the depths of the grave. That's where you want to go, ooh, rah, it's so good. Okay, so... How are we doing? Drinking from the fire hydrant? We're okay? Keep going? Okay. All right. So we want to look at this mountain range, these mountain peaks. And I want to, what I want to do essentially for the next 55-ish minutes that remain, we'll see how long this goes. Um, I want to walk through this story. I want to tell you this story. I want to go through these mountain peaks, these covenants of salvation history. So that's what we're doing. It's helpful if you have this cheat sheet in front of you so you can map along where we're going, what we're doing. Feel free to jot anything down. And like I said, if you've got anything you need to stop me on, stop me on, or I will just keep going. So we begin as we have begun, as we've talked about this story already, always in the beginning. We have to begin with our original experience, which is not one of alienation from God. Our original experience, the human family, the original experience was one of communion with God. Remember from last week, I talked about how the natural habitat, if you will, the natural habitat of the human heart is Eden, right? Eden being this place of perfect union and communion, blessing, goodness, glory, beauty, all of the above. Like that's what our hearts were made for, not the brokenness of this fallen world. So that's the original experience, not fallenness. Fallenness is not the original state, but it's an, it's an important part, right? So the creation of the universe is seen by... The rabbis, it's seen by the early church fathers as this grand liturgical act. If you read the text of Genesis, what you see it is like it's almost as if God is constructing this cosmic temple. This cosmic temple. 
If you look at the temples in the ancient world, the very last thing to be installed in the temple was the image of the deity, right? So you build the temple of Zeus. Temple of Zeus is nearly done. Last thing you have to do is install in the heart of the temple the big statue of Zeus, the image of the god, right? Look at the grand cosmic temple of creation. It's built, and what's the last thing to be installed in the temple? God's image and likeness. Who bears his image and likeness? We do. Humanity does. Humanity does. So in the mind of ancient Israel, the cosmos, the universe, was this macro temple. That's what it was. It was this massive temple. The human race was meant to be the priest that offered sacrifice back, sacrifice and right praise back to God. So the universe was a macro temple. The temple, if you will, in Israel was a microcosmos. So if you look at the descriptions of how the temple is supposed to be built and how it's supposed to be decorated, it's, it's covered in the images of creation. There's plants and flowers and animals decorative all over the place. There's sun and moon and stars carved into it. All of it is meant to be evocative and symbolic of creation. There's water, which is meant to represent the sea. There's the inky curtain, which is meant to represent the sky. All of it, the temple is a microcosm. And the high priest is himself, in the theology of Israel, the high priest was a micro-temple. He himself embodied, if you will, the temple. I know this seems like a lot, but just stay with me. So cosmos is a macro-temple. The whole thing's a temple. The temple itself in Jerusalem was a microcosm, microcosmos, small universe, and the high priest was a micro-temple. He was the small image of the temple itself. Okay, so like I said last week, this fall... The fall of our, of our race is the backdrop, right? So you've got the original state, and then we have the fall. This is so important. We hear that the serpent whispers to humanity that you will not die when you eat of this fruit, and they don't. So who was right, right? God or Satan? Well, God was right. God was right. I talked about this last week, but just to review, expire to breathe out that that original grace, that original unity that humanity had with God in the beginning is breathed out. They don't die physically. They died spiritually. They died spiritually. I mean, think about like a flower growing in the ground. You pluck it from the ground. Does it immediately wilt and shrivel and die? No. But you pluck it from the ground and set it on the countertop, give it a few days, right, it will shrivel up and die. It's detached from its source of life. So this is humanity, right? Detached from God, there's this slow dying, right? I want to show you this beautiful clip. The movie, the movie itself was kind of weird. Uh, anybody seen the movie Noah with Russell Crowe? Yeah, kind of weird. Yeah, but there's this um, montage scene that's really kind of beautiful, really kind of cool, that shows this beautiful... Imagery of creation. I, I can't resist but showing it. And you got Russell Crowe narrating it, so come on now. All right.
Nothing against Russell Crowe there, but was it just man? Yes or no? And I don't mean like the human male. Was it just humanity that broke the world? Yes or no? No. There's another actor on the stage, right? To the question, why is everything so messed up? It's because there is an enemy, right? There's an enemy. It's not just us who broke it, which means it's not just us who can fix it. There's just something really beautiful about that, though, that really gets me every time. So, again, looking at this from Eucharistic prayer, time and again you offered them covenants and through the prophets taught them to look forward to salvation. So, like, it's almost like immediately after the fall, God begins launching this rescue mission. He's saying, I want to bring you back. I want to bring you back. So the first covenant mediator, if you look at your sheet, is Noah. Right? This is where we have the story of the great flood. Right? God who calls Noah to build an ark Build an ark. It takes him about 120 years, it says in the scriptures. Let's not focus on the timeline, the details. It's uh, burying the lead right there. But he builds this ark, and God instructs Noah to preserve on the ark animals. So the ark itself becomes like this little floating garden of Eden, if you will. It itself becomes a microcosm, a small image of the creation. So if you go back to the beginning... In the story of creation, the word that we hear for there was darkness and void, the, the Hebrew there is, it's a fun word, the phrase is tohu vabohu. 
It's a great laser tag team name, I, I found out. I've, you know, anyway, Team Tohu Vabohu. Anyway, so um, if anybody plays laser tag often. Anyways, okay, so it basically means this like watery chaos, this just chaos, this, it's essentially what it means. So creation, it's like it returns to this chaos, but this microcosm is preserved. So after the floods recede, God instructs Noah to open the gates of the, of the ark to let the life out. The early church fathers, they looked at this as a beautiful image and allegory of the church. That the church, the bark of Peter, the boat of Peter, its intention is to preserve a microcosm of God's good order upon creation amidst the chaos of this world. And what we're meant to do, what the church is meant to do, is to open the doors to let the life in the church flood into the world. That's what we're meant to, we're meant to Christify the world. What often happens, when, what has happened many times, is the, that the world has flooded the church. Right? The water has gotten inside the boat. What's meant to happen is that the life, the beauty, the power inside the boat is meant to get out into the world. That's the idea. Okay, so what you have here is this wiping clean, if you will, of the depravity of the human race. And God preserving a microcosm upon the ark here. So God establishes a covenant with Noah. What's the sign of the covenant? You see it on your paper? What's the sign? The rainbow, the rainbow. Now, this is a very interesting element here, right? So how many colors are in the rainbow? How many? Someone say too many? That's an odd response. <laughs> There's too many colors in that rainbow, God. Seven, right? We'll say seven. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, right? Roy G. Biv, right? Seven? Okay. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. Yeah, seven. What's the number that represents perfection in the Bible? Seven. How many sacraments are there? Seven. How interesting is that? Do you know what the number for imperfection is? Six. Just, just a point of interest, a point of just showing how the enemy works, how the enemy works. If you count the colors on the pride flag, how many colors are there? Six. Six. So this is our sign. We have to reclaim the rainbow, people. This is our sign. This is our symbol. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating stuff. Okay. More on that towards the end of becoming Catholic. Okay. So after the flood, humanity begins to spread, and we come to this story in the Old Testament where out of their pride, humanity builds this tower they call Babel, the Tower of Babel. The impetus, the motivation in this in the human family there is they say, let us make a name for ourselves. We want to like become something. We want to grasp, you see grasping here, grasping at godliness, grasping at power. So what God does as a result of this is he scatters their languages you see this division within humanity, the scattering of the languages, the diversifying of languages. What we see, this whole event, this scattering of languages, will be reversed at the end of our story at Pentecost. Pentecost is the undoing of Babel. It's the unbabbling of Babel, right? It's pretty awesome. Pretty awesome how God does these things. Okay, so after this, we see God calling the next covenant mediator who is, look on your sheet, after Noah, we have Abram. Abram. So before he's Abraham, he's Abram. 
So God chooses and calls Abram, and he promises him several things. He says, God will make him a great nation of Abraham's descendants. He promises him that from Abraham, he says, I'll make you a great name, which is another way of saying, from you will come a dynasty. And he says, Abraham, Abram, you will be a blessing to everyone. That is, salvation will come to all through Abraham's descendants. That universal blessing will come to humanity through Abraham, right, through Abraham's descendants. Okay, so he promises him these things. And the problem at this point for Abram in the story is that Abram, at this point in his story, is already really old. And he's childless. His name means father of many. Abram means father of many, which is a real bummer of a name when you got no kids. You're like, Ugh, hey, there's Abram. How many kids? You got no kids? The father of many is childless and he's old. But God promises him. He says, you will be a father, not only to one, but to many. This is where God promises him. He says, Abram, come outside your tent and look up at the stars and count them if you can. So will your descendants be. Now, depending on which church father you're reading, it's either daytime or nighttime. They, they disagree. And either case is fascinating. If it's nighttime, it's still like, are you serious? Again, Remember we talked about the stars? Semicolon, he made the stars also, okay? Remember Canis Majoris, big dog, seven quadrillion, right? You're still not impressed with God's stars. I get it, okay. So if it's nighttime, that's still amazing. Other church fathers say it's daytime. So imagine this, right? God tells Abram, Abram, come outside your tent and count the stars if you can. Ostensibly, I can't. But what does Abram know about the stars? Even though it's daytime. They're still there. They're still there. Even though I can't see it, I trust that they're there. This is a fascinating read on the promise, right? Both of them are beautiful, fascinating reads. So, God promises the heir, no heir comes along. It's getting a year later, two years later, ten years later. He's like, what am I supposed to do, God? So he grasps at a solution. You're going to see this theme of grasping. Not good. So he sleeps with his uh, slave woman, Hagar, and she gives birth to a son named Ishmael, from whom come the Ishmaelites, who the uh, Muslim people say they're descended from. God comes to Abram and says, uh-uh, Abram, that's not what I told you to do. Your son will come legitimately through your wife, Sarai, who her name becomes Sarah. So he says, he reissues the covenant, he reissues the promise. And then there's this whole strange scene where God tells Abraham to take these animals and cut them in two and split the pieces on either side. So you've got like the head of the animal over here, the butt of the animal over here, all these animals cut in half. And then Abraham falls into this bizarre trance. The word in Hebrew is tardamah. This trance falls upon him and he sees this flaming fire pot. Some translations of the Bible say a flaming brazier passing through the animals. Now, true story. This has nothing to do with what we're talking about right now, but this is a funny story. At my last assignment, when this reading was being proclaimed at Mass, the person reading, instead of saying a flaming brazier, said a flaming brazier was passing through the animals. Everyone's like, what? I'm not joking. I barely held it together. It was unbelievable. Second best to that was when the, the OBGYN in the congregation was reading a letter of St. Paul to the Fallopians, which was also not 
who he wrote a letter to. <laughs> so, totally true. <laughs> Paging Dr. Freud. Okay, so, so God returns. He ratifies the covenant with Abraham, but now there's a, a, a hitch to it, a, a, an added element. There's now a sign associated with the covenant. What is the sign of the covenant on your cheat sheet? Circumcision. Hi. So picture Abraham coming back into the camp. Listen, guys, I got good news and I got bad news. Abraham, what's the good news? We've got a covenant with the Lord God. That's awesome. What's the bad news? As he's sharpening the rock in his hand. Well, see that extra bit of skin on your, you know, loins? Yeah, we got to cut that off. Okay. What? All right, what's the deal with this? Because we have to say something about this. Circumcision. You can't read the scriptures and, like, it's an unavoidable element. It's also a very uncomfortable element, but it's unavoidable. So circumcision is the removal of the foreskin over the man's most sensitive area. What I think is very helpful and instructive is seeing the symbolism in the New Testament. St. Paul will say things like, circumcise your hearts. Circumcise your hearts. In other words, remove all of the covering, the protective covering over your hearts. That God, he wanted to make the mark. He wanted to carve his sign into the man's flesh right where it counts. In Hebrew, in the very beginning in the book of Genesis where it says male and female, he created them. The words in Hebrew are zakar and nikeva. Zakar and nikeva. Now, the way the Hebrew works is that there's not um, um, vowels. That's the word I was looking for. There's not vowels in Hebrew. So there's word families in Hebrew. So the word zakar, masculine, active in Hebrew, it's related to the other Hebrew word zikaron, which means to remember. And nikeva is related to negeba, which means to open, to open. So, you think about the sign of circumcision. Who is going to see the sign of circumcision? The man himself and, if he's married, his wife. His wife. So going back to what we've talked about with the Trinity, the symbolism of masculine and feminine, this, the importance of marriage, that when the man remembers who he's supposed to be, the bride entrusts herself. When the man forgets who he's supposed to be, in other words, an image bearer of God to his bride, she will close herself. Circumcision is not just a barbaric sign. It's, it's a deeply spiritual sign. Like, you think about the, the biology of femininity, that God has, like, there is already a reminder in the feminine biology that there is sacrifice associated with these powers of life and death. Like God has carved into the man's flesh, into his very loins, the sign of sacrifice. The sign of sacrifice. Okay. So, it's got the sign of the covenant, circumcision, and then comes these three angelic visitors who promise Abraham that next year his wife will have conceived a son. Now at this point, she's like 150 years old, which is really old to you know, be going to newborn classes. So, um, so, what she does in response is exactly what you just did. She laughs in response 
to the angel saying that you will conceive his son. You know what the word for laughter in Hebrew is? Itzak. Which is the name of their son. Laughter. Your son. You laugh, lady, but you're going to have a newborn at 150 years old. Who's laughing now? Okay. So, it's a great story. This is a real story. So, fast forward now. We're in Genesis chapter 22, I think. God tells Abraham, Abraham, take your son, Isaac, your only begotten son, to a mountain that I shall point out to you, and there sacrifice him to me. Offer him as a holocaust to me. We often think of Abraham dragging his like kindergartner boy up the mountain. You read the text, Isaac is 33 years old. Is 33 a significant number for us as Christians? Jesus was 33, right, when he was crucified. Now, a 33-year-old man versus a 120-year-old man, who's probably going to win in a fight? The young guy, right? So what we understand by this is that Isaac is a willing victim. So Isaac takes the wood of the sacrifice, loads it on his back, and follows his father into the wilderness. For three days, they are marching into the wilderness. Imagine Abraham in his mind, he's thinking, how could you possibly ask me to do this? Three days of anguish. They finally come to Mount Moriah, which is, in the New Testament, Mount Zion. An outcrop of Mount Zion, a part of this mountain, Mount Zion in Jerusalem, is a rocky outcrop that became known as Golgotha, which is where they crucified the Lord. This same mountain, the father takes the only begotten son with the wood of the sacrifice up the mountain. Isaac asks his son along the way, very awkwardly, Hey, Dad, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? My son, God will provide himself the lamb for the sacrifice. Now, in Hebrew, there's no punctuation either. So the way this could be read, or this way this, this could be translated, is God himself will provide the lamb for the sacrifice, or God will provide himself the lamb for the sacrifice. This is a beautiful quote from Dr. Brant Petrie. The ancient Jewish rabbis concluded that the killing of animals in the temple by itself could not have meant much to God. No, these, the sacrifices must have gotten their power from somewhere else, but from where? The answer they came up with was brilliant. From the near sacrifice of Isaac, Abraham's obedient consent to the death of his only begotten son and Isaac's willingness to die out of obedience and love. These were things that did have real value in God's eyes. Since Isaac's near sacrifice took place on the very site of the future temple, some rabbis taught that the animal sacrifices in the temple were a kind of reminder or representation of the one and only really powerful sacrifice of Isaac. So at this moment, Abraham's got the knife drawn. Isaac has laid himself down upon the altar. This is called the akedah of Isaac, the binding of Isaac. He's bringing the knife down, and all of a sudden the angel from heaven comes down. Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy, right? And he's like, whoo, thank God, right? Actually, that was more Isaac, whoo, thank you, Jesus, who doesn't exist yet. That's confusing. Moving on, okay. I see that you are willing to sacrifice. 
and then they spot a ram, which is a female lamb or male lamb, male lamb, a ram, with its head caught in a thorn bush, in a thorn bush. So you have the lamb with its head surrounded by thorns who becomes the substitution for Isaac. Does the lamb with the head surrounded by thorns, does that remind anybody of anything? All right, just making sure. We're paying attention. Okay. This is typology. This is, this is the foreshadowing. Okay. You have to imagine, I mean, there's a lot of awkward conversations in the Bible. This has got to be coming down the mountain, one of the most awkward conversations. Hey, Dad, we're going to need some therapy, right? Like, this, is, this, was, this was not okay. This was not okay. All right. So, the Jews, they begin to multiply and they become prosperous. Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Israel has his 12 sons. They become the, the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. The youngest of Israel's sons is a little snot-nosed kid named Joseph who has dreams. His older brothers dislike Joseph. They hate that their father loves him the most. And so they sell him into slavery. Super sucky. He gets sold into slavery down to Egypt. He rises to power in the Pharaoh's court. A famine strikes the land of uh, where uh, Israel's sons and their families are. So they come down to Egypt to beg for food rations. And then there's whole, this whole scene where they're there in the court. Joseph is next to the Pharaoh. They're begging Joseph for food, but they don't recognize that it's Joseph. All of a sudden he reveals himself. He's like, it is me, your brother Joseph. Back again. Are you hungry? You know? There's this beautiful family reunion scene. They stay in Egypt, and they begin to multiply. Life in Egypt is good. They're all hanging out by the Nile, smoking cigarettes, enjoying themselves. I made up the cigarettes part. They begin to multiply and multiply and multiply. Then we hear in Scripture, we hear in Scripture this line from Exodus, then a new king who knew nothing of Joseph came to power in Egypt. And this begins... The oppression of the Jews. 430 years of oppression, abject slavery in Egypt. God determines to send another covenant mediator to his people. This time it is Moses. Moses, whose name itself means drawn from the reeds, right? So, the Pharaoh determines that the Jews are multiplying. We're going to wipe out all the Jewish baby boys. So there's the slaughter of the, the Hebrew males. Moses' his mother preserves him, saves him, puts him in a little basket, floats him down the Nile River, which is so not safe. Floats him down the Nile River. He comes into where the Pharaoh's daughter is bathing, and she draws him out of the reeds. Moses becomes his name. And then she sends for one of the Hebrew uh, wet nurses to nurse her newfound baby, and it's uh, Joseph. It's um, it's Moses' own mom, and we have Deacon Rich. Okay, so Moses is raised in the Egyptian court. We are telling the great story, Deacon Rich. We're at the Moses chapter. Oh, great. oh it's invigorating. Okay, <laughs> they're loving it. <laughs> There's a video of a plant growing. Should we go back and show it? Should we? Okay, maybe at the end. Okay. Okay. He's raised to prominence in the Egyptian court, but we see in Moses that he's a very impulsive and kind of rash guy. He sees an Egyptian mistreating a slave, and so he strikes him dead, buries him in the sand, 
and then his life is now threatened. He flees into, he flees into the desert. He's, uh, he's, hello. He is, uh, he's raised, not raised, he was taken care of by the Midians, the Midian shepherds. And one day while he's tending the flocks of Jethro, his father-in-law, he stumbles across a bush that is on fire but not consumed, is the language of Exodus, Exodus uh, 3.14. The bush is on fire but not consumed. The bush speaks, the angel of the Lord speaks from the bush, Moses, Moses, come no near, for the ground on which you stand is holy ground. Remove your sandals. He identifies himself. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I've seen the affliction of my people in Egypt, and unto them I will send you. I will send you. This commences this great battle royale between God and Pharaoh, the condemnation of the Egyptian gods. So every one of the plagues that now is unleashed upon Egypt is a condemnation of one of the Egyptian gods. All of the plagues correspond to an Egyptian god, which is pretty fascinating. So this is this battle, this showdown. Who's the real power? Who's the real god? This culminates in the 10th of the plagues, the 10th plague, when the angel of death will come into Egypt and will slay all the firstborn. But God instructs Moses, more on this later, God instructs Moses, tell the Israelites, each family shall procure for itself a lamb, a male, year old, without blemish, either from the sheep or the goats, and you shall take it and slaughter it in the evening twilight, which means around three o'clock. You shall take some of its blood with a branch of hyssop, put it on the doorpost and the lintel of your house. You shall eat the lamb that night. And the angel coming into Egypt, seeing the blood on the door, will pass over, hence the name Passover, pass over your house and you shall be spared. So we have the slaughter of the lambs, the first Passover, the Passover. Okay, after the Passover, the Egyptians are, or the, the, yeah, the Egyptians drive the Israelites out of Egypt. They said, get out of here, essentially, get out of here. They come to the shore of the Red Sea. I can't help, I can't resist showing you this scene from Prince of Egypt, which is one of my favorite all-time movies. Come on now, who loves Prince of Egypt? Yeah, okay. So they come to the shore of the Red Sea with the Egyptian army barreling down behind them, impossible situation in front of them, and God makes a way where there was no way.
I don't care what anyone says. That is the coolest scene of all time. That is, that's actual audio, uh, video footage, actually. Okay, so this passage through the Red Sea, this becomes a sign of baptism. So on the Easter Vigil, there's one of the essential readings that you cannot skip, that you have to have at the Easter Vigil, is the story of the passage through the Red Sea when God destroys, essentially, all of the Egyptians, the Egyptians. Like Pharaoh, who is a sign of the enemy, the Egyptians who are a sign of the enemy. They are destroyed as the Israelites pass through the water from slavery to freedom, a sign of baptism. Okay, so they arrive at Sinai for the giving of the law. Now, I know I said that was actual footage. That's not actual footage. But this, this is the actual footage of the giving of the law at Sinai. I blemished. Why have you chosen me? What did you have me do for you? I shall give you my laws, and you shall take them unto the people. Yes, Lord. <laughs> Lord, I shall give these laws unto thy people. Hear me. Oh, hear me. so good. Okay. The law is given in the context of liberation. This is so significant that God's laws, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue is given in the context of the liberation. It's as if God is saying, if you would be free and stay free, follow this, do this. The law liberates. The law is given in the context of freedom. So they come into the desert and they begin the desert wandering. And in the desert, they build the tabernacle, which is this tent, this portable tent in which Moses and God converse face to face. Well, behind a curtain, but as if face to face with a friend. So the Israelites, because of their apostasy by building the golden calf, what happens is the numbers of the law increase exponentially. So it was originally 10. It eventually balloons up to 613 laws. And the laws of Leviticus, they are meant to be corrective. They're meant to be medicinal, bringing the people back into line. All right, I got to move a little bit faster. Okay, so moving through the promised land, it's Joshua, whose name in Hebrew is Yeshua, the same name for Jesus. It's Yeshua, not Moses, who leads the people into the promised land. After Joshua and his generation passes away, the people of Israel are plunged into turmoil for several hundred years. They fall into a cycle of sin against God, suffering under their enemies, sorrow for their sin, salvation under a God-sent leader. This is the time of the judges. And then the cycle of sin, suffering, sorrow, salvation repeats. Say that five times fast. Sin, suffering, sorrow, salvation. It repeats itself. Okay, so God then raises up, and after this season, of this, this era of the judges, he raises up finally a king, a king. First, he raises up Saul, 
But Saul in his sinfulness is not worthy of the kingship. So God anoints David. God anoints David and forms another covenant with David, right? He makes promises to David. He says, David, God promises David a son who will build God's temple, be the son of God, and rule over Israel forever. These are the promises that God gives to David. David dreams of building this temple to house the ark, right? The ark is that box that God instructed Moses to build to house the the law. So David dreams of building the temple, but it's not David who gets to build the temple. It's Solomon, David's son, who gets to build the temple. So just like every other covenant mediator that God has called, they all have their flaws. They all have their own fall, if you will. Right? All of the covenant mediators, just like Adam, they all have their own fall. David has his own fall. Right? So he's supposed to be the great king. Well, there's this line in 2 Samuel where it says, the time of the year when kings go out on campaign, David awoke from his afternoon siesta, which is a bad sign. He woke from his afternoon siesta and was walking about the roof of the palace. And he sees Bathsheba taking a bath. I don't know if there's a connection there, Bathsheba, Bath, I don't know. But he summons her, and he has relations with her, and she conceives a child. Now, what's so interesting, if you read the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, which we'll hear at Christmas Eve, we hear this about David. David had a son with Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. So if you're a Jewish person, you hear this genealogy of Jesus, you hear that line, and you think, oh, snap, right? You guys are dead out there. I'm giving you my best material. There's nothing. Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. David had Uriah killed, okay, to cover up his crime. So fast forward, fast forward to the destruction of the temple. The destruction of the temple. In 586 B.C., the Babylonians come in and they destroy everything. They take Israel captive, which it's hard to put into words how catastrophic this was. So let's read this. For the ancient Israelite worshiper, the importance of the temple can hardly be overemphasized. The temple was a standing reminder of the covenants with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. It summed up all salvation history and represented all God's relationships with his people. There was nothing greater than the temple except God himself. Many years later, Jesus will describe his own presence by saying something greater than the temple is here. So after David, we now have this divided kingdom and the exile. And then you have the time of the prophets who begin to dream of God's restoration and covenant fulfillment. Where is this story headed, God? You've made all these promises. Is it heading somewhere beautiful? Is it going to be resolved? So you hear from the prophets longing for covenant fulfillment, Isaiah, dreaming of this day where God will, through the virgin, conceive a son, and his name shall be Emmanuel. You hear Hosea, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of these prophets, I will open your graves and have you rise from them. Ezekiel, who is the first to promise a new covenant, right? So you have the prophets longing for this covenant fulfillment. And finally, it comes to Jesus. Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the covenants. Let's look at this. Jesus is the new Adam. Christ is the firstborn son of a new humanity, the king of kings, the great high priest, the living word of God, and the divine bridegroom. That's who Adam was. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. Jesus, the new Adam, is therefore a new Noah, 
whose church preserves a microcosm of God's good order amidst the, remember this word, the tohu vabohu. Remember, it's a good name for your laser tag team. The tohu vabohu of this present age. Jesus is the son of Abraham, the only begotten of the Father who carries the wood of the sacrifice up the mountain to be slain out of obedient love to the Father. Jesus is the lamb provided by God. Right? Remember John the Baptist says, when he sees Jesus walking along the shore of the Jordan River, he says, Behold the Lamb of God. Right? Israel had been waiting for the Lamb of God. Not just a lamb, not just any lamb, but the promised lamb. God will provide himself the lamb. And he does in Jesus, who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the seed of Abraham that blesses the whole world. Jesus is the new lawgiver. He's the new Moses. Jesus goes up the mountain to deliver the new law, right? the Beatitudes. And he gives the Spirit, which is the power to fulfill the law. Like Moses, Jesus provides miraculous bread from heaven. Jesus is the Passover lamb. And he is the new temple, the dwelling place of God on earth and the place of right worship. Jesus gives a better temple than Solomon, which is the living temple of his glorified body. Jesus sits on David's throne and reigns forever, which was Gabriel's promise to Mary at the Annunciation. And he shall be great, Gabriel said, shall be called the Son of the Most High, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. I will give him the throne of David his father. So Jesus fulfills all of the covenants. And it's all summed up in the new and eternal covenant of the Catholic Church, the universal church, God's family. Let's watch this. Shall abide in the 
Okay, we're gonna land this plane, but let me just say this. I know tonight was, was a lot, right? So we, we covered all of salvation history. Um, again, drinking from a fire hydrant, my apologies. <laughs> just to contextualize it again, going back to the beginning of the year, right? We shared the kerygma, created, captured, rescued response. Like I said at the beginning of tonight, there is a very important part that's in between the captured and the rescued, right? Because the rescue of Jesus, what he did on the cross, didn't just come out of nowhere. It wasn't just like a think tank idea of, of the Trinity, right? After the capture, after the fall, there was this incredible journey, this incredible story, this incredible unfolding of a plan that God, it, gluing humanity back together with these covenants over and over again, beginning with Noah, then to Abraham, then to Moses, then to David, all culminating in the eternal covenant, the unbreakable bond, the unbreakable marriage of Christ in his church, given in and through the Eucharist. All of this, this is this, this, is this grand sweeping story, this grand sweeping story, and it all culminates in the Lord. 